0: the Super 70 Sports podcast Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb and we've got a good one for you today. My guest is a two-time Major League All-Star, 256 career home runs and if you follow Super 70 Sports uh, you know there's no secret about the affection that I have for the Montreal Expos. Well this man was the everyday third baseman of the Expos from 1975 through 1981. So let's waste no time joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline Larry Parrish. Larry I'll start off with the Expos what was it like playing baseball in a foreign country at the tender age of 20 years old?
1: You know, I grew up in, in Florida in the, in the South and, and uh, really hadn't ventured very far uh, at that time. You know, I'd only been in a, maybe Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and uh, I think a, a trip to the to the mountains in Carolina for vacation and you know i hadn't really never ventured very far and when i signed with the you know with the expos in montreal i was really had to you know you basically had to get out the atlas and and figure out all right where am i you know where's this at (laughs) and uh and then from there uh, you're coming up through the minor leagues and i i played uh you know i signed and played uh uh, like the first year season, they call it the half season A ball in Jamestown, New York. But that was during the during the summer. Uh-huh. Uh, my my second year, uh, I played in the Florida State League, so I was actually playing, you know, basically at home. And uh, now my second full season with the Expos, I went to Quebec City, and it was. It was a total shock for me, not only culturally, but uh, weather-wise. i would never been in weather like that in my life. And we you know we fly out of uh, the, the Daytona Beach, Florida, and go to Quebec City, and there is snow piled up along the edge of the runways. So we got off that plane, and it was like I've never been this cold in my life, and it, uh, so it was it was quite different in Quebec City. Like you know, like you mentioned, is uh, you know, it's, the language is predominantly French there, and uh, it was you know, it was adjustment playing you know, being somewhere and, and uh, trying to converse in a new language, read uh, the menus uh but you know at, at the time you're a young kid and you're just uh, uh you know, really you enjoy you're playing baseball and you're in traveling and and uh uh you know the uh and I must say that, you know the French women uh you know were just you know dark hair and the the, the skin was you know, they were beautiful women. So as a is a young is a young uh you know, nineteen, twenty year old uh, it wasn't too bad.
0: <laughs> there were there were worse places to be then, I guess. <laughs> there was worse places to be, yes. So, yes. all right. So, uh, so it was a good thing that that uh, uh, you were able to make that adjustment because you know pr- pretty much before you know it, you're taking over uh, in in Montreal at third base, and you, you know you were a major league regular at the age of 21, which is. Uh, uh you, you know that's pretty that's pretty quick uh you know especially for uh especially for a guy who who wasn't drafted out of high school <laughs> to, to be a major league regular within a few years that's a pretty uh uh that's pretty incredible uh achievement uh how long did it take you before you really felt like you belonged uh in, in the big leagues it
1: was a it was a little bit of an adjustment uh you know, I know some of the kids that I've coached today. Uh, you know, when they get called to the big leagues, I don't think it's as big an adjustment for them because they don't know who they're playing against. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't really have the the uh, the awe I think or respect of the guys that played before them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, most of us, uh, uh, we grew up trading baseball cards, having baseball cards. And I grew up, I grew up, uh, my dad taking me to all the spring training games down in Florida. And, so I was a, you know, baseball fan. And, I remember uh, when I got called up, and, you know, after that, that double A season in Quebec, I got called up to Montreal and the first place that we played was in Pittsburgh. Well, they had just won the World Series, and you know, and I'm on the field with, you know, with, uh, you know, all those guys—Steve Blass, Doc Ellis, uh, Willie Stargell—you know, all those guys that just won the World Series—and I'm on this. I'm on the same field with them, and I'm I'm standing by the batting cage, you know, and just, you know. I was standing out there like a fan, you know, it was like, wow, you know, I'm on the same field with these guys. And, uh, I know that, uh, but you know, at that time I was just, uh, I, I'd been called up at the end of the year and, you know, when I wound up playing, um, uh, played a lot, uh, the, you know, to finish up the 74 season, and then the next spring training, you know, I made the club uh starting third baseman out of the spring, but I started the season uh pretty slow. And uh, I remember we were in Chicago and playing the Cubs and and after the game, you know, we played day games back then. Gene Mock uh was my manager uh, and Gene uh Come to my, come to you know, call me in and and said that uh, he wanted to take me out to eat that night. Oh, you know, and it was like yes, sir. (laughs) And I'm thinking, boy, this is you know, this you know, he's going to tell me that you know he's going to send me down Uh, because I wasn't hitting uh, very very well at the time. And Gene said me, you know, while we were we finished eating, and then we got to talk in baseball. And, you know, Gene, you know, said, hey, I've been around this game a long time. You know, I know a player when I see one. And he says, you got all the talent to be a major league player. Uh, but you have to believe that you belong and you're as good as the guy next to you that you're playing against. He says, you're, you're giving the other guys too much respect and you're giving yourself too little respect. And you're gonna have to change that attitude if you're gonna play up here. And, and if you, and there's no reason why you can't play here. You have enough talent. And I think that talk really, uh, you know, it, it was like, it was a confidence booster. It was like this guy believed in me. You know, I, I had grown up, uh, uh, you know, when he was managing the Phillies uh, with uh, Richie Allen, who would, went on to become Dick Allen, and Johnny Callison and those guys. And, sure. and uh, so, sure. so uh, I think I talked just sort of, uh, all right. You know, he thinks I belong here, maybe I do. And then from then on, uh, you know, it, I had a pretty good career.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, he, he, and- you know, let's talk a little bit because, you know, you really, you started to really come into your own uh, in the late 70s and, and the Montreal franchise really started to come into its own about the same time. I mean, you were blossoming as a play into an all-star caliber player and Montreal for the first time and it's, you know, the history of this expansion team is, is starting to win and, uh, you know, have a very formidable uh, lineup, a lot of young talent a uh, lot of uh you know future hall of famers that you that that you played with uh at, at that time uh take me back to the opening of Olympic stadium in 77 uh you know cuz when you came up uh they were still at Jerry park uh which uh you know was quite a different uh quite a different uh, uh yard than than Olympic stadium which you know of course at the time was uh, uh, state of the art, and had just hosted the the seventy six Olympics there. What were your what, what was your opinion, and, and of course, astroturf being a big difference too. What was your opinion of Olympic Stadium when you first uh, uh, got in there and saw it and played played on it? Well,
1: uh, it was like you said when I first came up, uh, we played in a ballpark. It was it was uh, they had been the AAA. Uh, affiliate for the Dodgers and, and played at, uh, Park Jari. And it was a, it was a minor, you know, Triple A ballpark that they added, uh, bleacher seats to and, and, uh, you know, so that it would hold the you know, hold enough people. Uh, but I think it only held, if, I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, like 29,000 people when it was
0: packed. That's tiny. And,
1: and uh, you know, the, clubhouses were, were actually down the left and right field line. Uh, you know, you either you had to walk outside to get to the dugout either down the edge of the field or underneath the stands. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, things were just so much different back then. You know, there was no weight room. I mean, if you got... Uh, we didn't even have an indoor cage, so if we got rained or snowed out on the field, uh you know, we couldn't go to the cage and get our work like they do today. I mean, you just, uh, our cage was a little net behind the right field fence. So if you couldn't, if you couldn't take it on the field, you couldn't do it in the cage either. I mean, we would go days where we didn't hit, uh, you know, our exercise is sort of a rolled up piece of tape, uh, playing hockey in the, in the clubhouse, (laughs) you know, between the lockers, uh, So, uh, you know, (laughs) you and then uh, we went from. uh, And the wind blew in every day from left field, Uh, and you know, really, uh, it affected me a a little bit as a hitter uh, because you hit balls that would normally be home runs, and the wind would just, you know, would just stop them. Uh. And as you know, if I would have been older, you know, later in my career, uh, the ball went to right field very well, right center. You know, later in my career, I could have, I could have adjusted and I would have just, you know, hit the ball out to right center all the time, you know, and played to win.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But when you're, when you're a young kid, uh, you know, I didn't know how to do that. I just tried to, you know, I tried to hit it harder. I think it, you know, it, it, it bothered me a little bit for a couple of years there. I think it affected my, uh, you know, I just wasn't uh, well. I wasn't old enough, I, I don't think, and having enough experience to uh, to know how to handle that. And then from there, we moved in moved into Olympic Stadium, which was, you know, like you said, a much, you know, very modern type ballpark with AstroTurf. Everything was new and pretty. The only thing with the astroturf there is a lot of times, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it would be frozen underneath. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was awfully hard. It was, it was, uh, it was hard on your legs. I think uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, at that time, all the guys that I played with uh, seems like all of them had, you know, some some kind of uh, knee problems from from playing there on uh, on that uh, astroturf. Right. Uh, you know, and the astroturf today in some of the fields are so much different. Uh, you know, they actually have blades of grass that uh, have sand over it, uh, much more cushioning. Back then, it was basically just some carpet, uh, laid over asphalt. So it, it was, uh, it was awful hard. And, uh, uh but, you know, for the weather, uh, it kept us from being, you know, from being rained out, uh, you know, as much, and uh, it was much easier to take care of than grass would have been.
0: How did you like it as a hitter?
1: It was fair. Uh, the ball, the ball, uh, the ball seemed to carry down each line pretty good. There, uh, center field though was uh, was a tough area. It was, uh, it was the the, uh, the roof line in the uh, Olympic Stadium was sort of oval shaped. Like an egg, and it, and it was the center field. Whole plate in center field was like in the elongated part of it, and it seemed like the wind would sort of come over the, you know, the rooftop, and sort of push the ball down in center field. The ball didn't carry out that way very well. It was, and uh, even though we lost the, uh, the the playoffs on a Rick Monday home run to center field. Uh, just right center, uh, and I, I can remember that still to this day. Uh, that playoff game uh, when he hit it, the ball just did not normally go out of the ballpark out there. You know, we had Andre Dawson in center field, and when when Rick hit that ball, it was like he knew he hit it good, but it was like uh, you know, Hawk or you know, he'll he'll run that ball down. Sure. I remember you know watching him, and you see him going back and back, and it's like yeah, you know, he's getting deep now, but he's you know he's going to he's going to stop and catch his ball, and then and you know and then it disappeared over the wall, and you know you wouldn't see but maybe five, six balls go out the center field all year there. Wow. You know it's a lot different than uh, much different than you know the. Ball carried a little bit different uh, than
0: than it does today. Now, I mean, where were the parks that y- that you know your your eyes would light up? Because I mean, I know when I was a kid, at least the parks that had the reputation were, were Wrigley and Atlanta were, were were certainly two of them. I mean, well, in those... Atlanta
1: was <laughs> Atlanta. I loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just. You know, it, the ball would go out of the ballpark anywhere there. <laughs> and, uh, and when I was at my best, uh, as a hitter, I was left center, right center. Mm-hmm. I didn't pull the ball down the line, uh, very much, you know, when I was swinging the bat good. So, was, you know, I get in that ballpark and it was like, okay, ball goes, you know, ball go anywhere here. Uh, and, uh, now Wrigley, we, you know, it, the wind affects the ball so much in Wrigley Field. It's almost like a spring training uh, field uh, when we played there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think they've renovated it and put up different billboards around. But back then it was open. And it just depended on which way the wind was blowing. It could play like a, a Pony League field or it could play like Grand Canyon, depending <laughs> on which way the wind was blowing. Right, and uh, and it seems like we always followed Philadelphia into into Wrigley, and it was like Philadelphia would come in there for for three games, and every game that they played was eighteen to twelve. You know, it was like the wind was blowing out. They would hit a you know bunch of home runs, and it was like we would follow them in, and the wind would change. <laughs> You know, and we would, you know, we would play a 3-2 two or 2-1 two to one game there, Ricky. <laughs> what
0: did, What did you think of uh, uh, the Astrodome?
1: Well, you know, at the time, it was, you know, there was nothing like it. You know, it was a prototype of the scoreboards that they have today. And, uh, you know, the seats were almost like theater seats. I mean, it was, it really was uh, some kind of uh, they call it, I think, the eighth wonder of the world at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was—it was just so different than anything else at, at the time. You know, those guys would hit a home run, and the and the bull would start uh, snorting out there on the scoreboard in center field, and the bullets would ricochet all around the outfield wall, and and it was—you uh, know—there was nothing to compare it to at the time. You know, it was one of the toughest places to hit. Probably twofold on that. You know, it had a lot to do with their pitching, but they knew they had pitching, and so they just backed up. There was no foul territory. They backed home plate up as far as they could back it up, <laughs> and you know, they didn't even have, they didn't even have, you know, like how many feet it was to the wall out there. It was just, uh, you know, it just played very large. And, uh, you know, they just sort of built that club, you know, to their pitching. And, you know, they had uh, J.R. Richards and, you know, Nolan and, and, uh, Joe Nicro, you know, you got two guys throwing 100 and then you had Joe throwing the knuckleball up there and, you know, Zambito in that bullpen. And, you know, they, they just had a lot of pitching. And then that's, and then they just tried to beat you by speed and, you know, and, Sort of line drive, you know, line drive type hitting, but uh, uh, it was it was some kind of some kind of ballpark to go into though to see well, at the time because nothing to compare
0: it to. Let, let me ask you about Jr. and, and Nolan uh, because you know the the book that I'm writing, I've I've uh, asked a lot of guys who who played against both of them uh, what it was like. Uh, can, can you and I, you know, and uh, obviously I'm uh, I'm lacking in major league ability, as uh, I'm assuming just about all of my listeners are. Uh, can you put it into terms that you know your 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 average fan can understand, at least to some extent, what made uh, guys like Jr. and Nolan uh, just a, a different experience than even your even your ordinary hard thrower.
1: Well, they, you know, their ball just was, uh, you know, was was just live. Uh, you know, they had that little extra jump to it. And, you know, in the mound, uh, at, at, at that time in Houston, it seemed like it was about three foot high out there. <laughs> it was like you were looking, you know, up on there. It was like they were throwing on top of a mountain, throwing downhill. And, uh, you know, it was a big ballpark, and and then both of those guys, you know, their their fastball, they were different. Uh, Nolan's just sort of, uh, you know, would just sort of explode on you. It it, it almost, you know, his and Seaver's fastball, they, you know, it just seemed to have that uh, little rise to it. They said it doesn't happen, but as a hitter, it sure seemed like it did. <laughs> Especially if it was up in the zone at all, it would just sort uh, of—you just couldn't center it. Uh, it, You know, even when if you had it timed, it seemed like you—you know—you you you hit the bottom of the ball and you fouled it off. You know, you just couldn't square it up. Mm -hmm. Nolan at that time, though, was—you know—he was basically a a, a two-pitch pitcher. You know, he was a fastball, curveball guy, and at that time, he didn't always have his curveball. You know, when he had his curveball, uh, you know, he had a chance to no hit you, you know, every time he went out there. But it, you know, he didn't always have the curveball. And a lot of times, you know, he would, you know, he would pitch the game off of, you know, just one pitch. And sometimes later in the game, you know, you could get to him, you know, because he would just tire. But, you know, he became, you know, he became more of a pitcher later in his career. He started, uh, you know, being able to, being able to throw the change up and, you know, you know, move the ball around and, and, uh, you know, he got more control of, the of his fastball and, and, uh, but Jr. Richard at the time was, uh, to me, there was no one, there was no one in his category. Uh, he, he just had so much leverage out there on the mound. He was tall, big guy as it was. And he, he just, his, Pitch was his fastball just had so much down downward angle to it that uh, that he would throw the ball and as it was coming into the plate it looked like it was going to be waist high you know it looked like it was going to be a great pitch to hit and when you went to swing at it it was it was up in your you know it was, it was up in your you know upper chest or chin high. Wow. And, you know, you know, obviously the coaches would go, man, you can't chase that, you know, chase his pitches up there, you can't hit them. But as a hitter, they didn't look like they were going to be that high, you know, because of the angle he was throwing. And then he would throw, when he threw one knee high, as a hitter, it looked like the ball was, it looked like he was going to hit the ground before it got to the catcher. <laughs> or it was going to be right at the ground, you know. I mean, you just thought it was real low. And somehow his ball would just plane out, and, you know, you would take it and look back, and the catcher was catching it knee-high. You know, and it was a strike, and you were like, God, I thought that ball was going to be way low. I mean, he was – and then his slider was, uh, uh, you know, it was just hard and tight. Uh, you know, I know one game we were facing him down in the Astrodome, and he was throwing his slider at 94 and he was as Willie Stargell said it best he said it's like
0: a it was like a runaway beer truck he couldn't head it off oh man you know, it was
1: just it was so hard and tight it was, he was just uh, you know to me he was in a, a class all by himself for a very short time
0: I'll just pick back up now I was uh I was going to say, yeah, the way that you describe that, I think, is <laughs> maybe the best description that anybody's ever given me of uh, of either Nolan or J.R., uh, the way that you're describing Richard. Because, I mean, <laughs> that, that it, 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 the idea of uh, the, describing the ball as being like it's going to hit the ground and then it's in the strike zone and throwing his and ball. In the, it, That's incredible. Yeah, he
1: was – there was no one that I saw that was in his – they, were, they compared to him for a very short period of time
0: there. Um, you know, you you, know men- you mentioned Willie uh, S- Stargell, and th- and that got me to thinking. You know, there's a home run that Willie Stargell hit at Olympic Stadium that I've had several guys talk to me about saying it was the longest ball that they ever saw anybody hit off of uh, off of Wayne Twitchell. In, in, yeah, in seventy eight. Do you remember that home run I'm talking about? Oh yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's one of those they homers. You know, there's no. There obviously there's no video footage of it today or anything like that. So it's just like uh, it's like talking about the wild west and you know how how fast some guy you know, was how on fast the draw. Was that guy,
1: <laughs> right?
0: So I mean, no, I, so what I are your memories of?
1: I think about that a lot. You know, I've seen these guys in the 90s. I was coaching and, and uh, you know, early 2000s. And, you know, steroids uh, were were part of the game. Uh, you know, guys got stronger. And, and uh, you know, and they were hitting some, you know, some long home runs and stuff. And I was thinking, my goodness, how far would Willie O'Sargell hit the ball? <laughs> If he would have been on the juice, because I mean he hit balls that that uh, you know he hit two out of Dodger Stadium, you know in the palm trees.
0: Yeah,
1: and then that one in Montreal, uh, it was I can remember that was uh, because the first the first time up that day, first of all, Wayne Twitch was it was a perfect storm for Willie. Uh, uh, Twitch was a you know pretty good pitcher, but. Uh, Churchill was sort of a sidearm, you know, low three quarter type guy. Uh-huh. And his ball tended to tail a lot. And he had just a little bitty slider. Uh, and he was tough on right handed hitters. But left handed hitters, you know, gave him trouble. And especially a guy like Willie, because Willie had that, you know, long arms and, you know, big, big frame and, and, if you were going to get Willie out, you had to be able to tie him up inside. Well, Twitch couldn't get there. You know that was that was that was not his a game. So really, he, he would have been better off if he would have just walked Willie every time he come up. But uh, you know, on the first time up, uh, you know he threw a fastball, to ran back out over the plate, and, and uh, on this particular day, and Willie. In a home run out to center field, like I, I was saying earlier, you didn't you didn't see that many go out, and this just you know just barely got over the wall. And at the time, uh, we had just called up uh, you know some of our young pitchers. You know I'm not you know I it was that I don't remember exactly which ones it was, uh, but I believe it was like Gullickson and Sanderson. Mm-hmm. They were all in that group, Charlie Lee, David Palmer, Gullickson Sanderson. Right. You know, they sort of all come up pretty much around that same time, Haldews. And uh but those those guys were sitting there on the bench and, and uh you know, they were when we come off the field they were talking about the ball that Willie hit. And I'd seen him hit one in the upper deck and against us in uh in Pittsburgh. You know, and so I told the guy, you know, I told those young pitchers, I said, hey, I said, he didn't hit that one. Where do you see him really hit one? (laughs) You know, I had no idea that that he was, he was going to make me a profit because, uh, it seemed like it was the next at bat. I'm not sure, but, uh, our dugout in Olympic Stadium was in on the first base line and, Twitchell decided he was gonna to try to get that slider of his, you know, inside and tie Willie up. And well, it didn't get there. <laughs> and when he hit when he hit this ball, I mean it sounded like you know, it sounded like a gun went off, you know, you go, pow. And Man. and and it wasn't I mean, it was just like a golf ball. I mean it just and it like it, you know, it never came down. It just kept going and going and it was, you know, there wasn't on any arc. I mean, it was just like it was shot out of a gun and it just went like on a straight line up there to that, to that seat, you know, out there in right field and the second deck. And I mean, we had, you know, I played there for, uh, for five years, uh, you know, and, you never seen any balls, even in batting practice. Anybody, you know, hit them into that second deck there, and he hit that ball up there, and it was—I mean, you know—and it was like when he hit it, it was like our whole dugout emptied. You know, they ran on, you know, out of the dugout just to see how far it was going to go. I mean, there was no doubt about. Uh, uh, you know, it was one of those later later on McGuire hit one against us when I was coaching in Detroit uh Brian Moeller. And when he hit it, it wasn't you know, if that's a homer, it was like as soon as he hit it, it was like that's gonna go on the roof, you know, that's going over the roof out there the left, you know. And it did. You know, and that was that was sort of the same way with Sargil hit that one. It wasn't like is it a homer? It's just like how far is this ball going to go? And uh, you know, and I don't think it was ever—I've never heard of the of a ball, another ball, ever going in the second deck down the line in right field. And this here was straight away right. Wow! You know, and it was sort of circle. You know, the, the stands out there was circle shaped for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh You know, to be able to you know to see the track and field and and all like that, so it wasn't really wrapped for a baseball field out there. So it just kept you know it kept getting deeper. You know, you know, you know, every foot that you went out, you know, it got a, it got deeper. Right. So you know where that ball hit, it was just uh, you know it was just it was unheard of how far. How far, but also just how hard, you know, like, uh, like I said, it was, it had to be sort of like the one that, the, you know, you hear guys talk about, uh, that Mantle hit off Fisher that hit off of the facade in Yankee Stadium. Uh, you know, it just almost went out of the Yankee Stadium. Uh, you know, it had to be that same type trajectory and the same, same sound, uh, you know.
0: That's remark. That's remarkable.
1: You know, and the funny thing about Sargent, he hit a ball uh, in Pittsburgh. It wasn't even a home run, and it was one of the most, you know, one of the hardest balls I ever seen hit. There was an umpire at the time named Billy Williams, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there was a few Billy Williams. You know, the Cubs at that time still had Billy Williams, a great hitter. But there was also an umpire, Billy Williams, and he was, he was, happened to be at second base, and Stargill's up, and, you know, as a third baseman, I played, I played, uh, you know, just, I played shortstop when Willie hit, you know, cause we would put the shift on him. And, uh, so Billy's out in right center field, and, no, it was wet that day. In the the old, they, the Pirates had tartan turf. It was the only ballpark that had that, and it was uh, it was almost like a, a carpet. Very very short uh, blade type deal. Almost didn't have any blades. It was just a uh, basically a rug, and it played very well when it was dry, but it, when it was wet. Every ball was like skipping a rock off the water. I mean, it was, it was, it was dangerous when it got wet. Well, it was wet that day and, and Stargell hit a line drive. One of those is hooking. And you know, you'll see that sometimes, you know, like a, a coach or something uh, down the lines, but Billy was out in right center field. <laughs> and he could not get out of the way of this ball. He turned his back to run, and it hit him right in the. It you know it's, it hit the astroturf, but it skipped in him, and it didn't slow down any, and hit him right in the back as he was trying to get out of the way of it. You know, and it was just you know you just think about how hard you know as a guy that's is on the baseball field every day and could not get out of the way of the ball.
0: Right. <laughs> S- something happened that's not supposed to happen.
1: Right. You you know, when you, it's one of those, almost like Bo Jackson, when you see him run up and run down the wall in Anaheim, Yeah, you know, when he did it, you go, okay. But then you, you know, it's one of those wait a minute moments, you know, and you think, wait a minute. Exactly. You can't do that. That ain't supposed to happen.
0: Exactly. He just
1: defied gravity.
0: <laughs> yeah, he made it look like somehow that was a, that was a thing, but that's not a thing.
1: Right, it's like yeah, he made it look like everybody could do it, and then you think, wait a minute, <laughs> you can't do that.
0: So, so I take it Stargell. I mean, I mean, was Stargell the guy out of everybody that that you played against that that had the, that had the greatest power?
1: I mean, he was he was. God, he had to be. You know, he's the one guy. Of course, we played him a lot. Uh, <laughs> You know, being with the Expos and, uh, but he, he could hit the ball just so, so far, uh, and hard. You know, and he was a, you know, he was a big, a big swinger, but, uh, you know, and he was just a wonderful guy to go along with being a great player. Uh, you know, and there was other guys. I mean, I, you know, uh, Dick Allen back then could hit the ball. He could hit the ball a long way. Uh, you know, and there was there was you know there were other guys that, uh, but you know some people uh, you know big Frank Howard uh, obviously he could hit them you know monster homers, uh, but, uh, but a lot of those you know some of those guys they'll hit like you know they hit like line drives, you know the, some guys can't can't get the towering shots now I can remember uh Conseco when he first came up. Uh you know, of course I, I know it was a steroid era, but still he he hit those home runs that went up and you know you know, you got to watch him for a long time. You know, <laughs> sort of ooh and sort of who and all on him. McGuire could hit him like that where uh, you know, there's other people that hit uh, you know they hit more of a line drive type homer and it's just boom. you know and the ball's out of the ballpark home run and it's like you don't it was like alright that's a home. I know Dave Parker hit one against us in, in Pittsburgh uh, off Tom Walker that hit the back wall and ricocheted back to second base you know it was just a line drive yeah. you know that never went down you know and it was it was hit you know but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't majestic because it didn't have that, you know, the right uh, trajectory. Right. And, uh, you know, and there's certain guys that just had to, you know, had that trajectory that it was, uh, you know, was beautiful when they really, when they really got into one.
0: All right. Well, this, well, this is about you, so 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 here's your chance to to toot your own horn. I mean, looking back on your career, I mean, you you hit more than a few yourself, and you know you were a big guy with some pop. Uh, what, what, what was uh, what's on the short list of uh, of the the best ones that you got a hold of?
1: You know, and a lot of it has to do with what stadium you're playing in. You know, some of them uh, you you really can't tell. You know, just how far the ball went, and then and then other stadiums are. You know, you can sort of mark them. Uh, it's like the like Boston. You know, if right field, you can mark it, like where Ted Williams hit that ball out there. But you but you take left field, and you got the net. It just you know, it's hard to tell how far those balls go. It's just a home run. You right.
0: Know? Exactly.
1: Uh, so I hit I hit a couple in Yankee Stadium that you know where you can sort of compare. There's been a lot of history there in the old Yankee stadium. And, uh, I hit one, uh, off Bob Shirley there that, uh, you know, went in the upper deck in left field. And, uh, you know, I was pretty proud of that one. And then I hit one, uh, off field Negro there when he pitched, pitched a little bit with the Yankees. And, uh, I always liked the, I always liked the ball down and in. And Phil threw me a knuckleball that went, you know, went right to my sweet spot, you know, and I squared it up. And, uh, they used to have the, uh, uh, the bullpens behind, out there in the left center field. And they had both bullpens, the visitors and the Yankee bullpen. And then behind that, they had the, they had an ambulance out there. And I hit the ball on top of the ambulance. It, uh, and uh, Phil Rizzuto was still doing the announcing there, and he talked about it being one of the longest home runs he saw there. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, that was that was neat for me personally.
0: Yeah, that's pretty special. And in such a, you know, and in a ballpark with so much history, like, like you said, you know, that's. Uh, right. I, it, so let me ask you one more question about the National League, and then I'm going to jump ahead to later in your career. But I, uh 79, you made your first All-Star team. Um, what was that experience like going out? I believe it was the, the 50th All-Star game, and it was uh, at the Kingdome uh, that year. A lot of people remember that for Dave Parker's, uh, throw from the outfield. Yeah. But what what was that experience like, uh, you know, sort of arriving at that level, you know, you had a tremendous year in 79 and then being there in that locker room with, you know, just the best of the best.
1: It was, you know, it was, uh, it was a wonderful, uh, place to make it all Star team. Uh, you know, the, uh, it, it wasn't quite like it is today, but back then, you know, we went to the field and worked out. There wasn't a home run hitting contest, but, uh, uh there was a lot of people there though when we took batting practice and, uh, you know, and that was fine. And then we did the, we went out into the sound and, uh, to one of the islands and they cooked salmon. And so it was a, you know, in the Northwest, a very beautiful place and then being in the locker room and, you know, was you know, many, many hall of famers at the time. Uh, you know, the big red machine was still at the top. Uh, Philadelphia had some great players at that time, hall of famers. And, and, uh, uh, you know, just being, like you said, just being in the same locker room with those guys and, uh, uh, just feeling like uh, you know what uh, I've uh, you know I might not be a Hall of Famer, but I'm you know I'm a pretty good player to be in the same room with uh, with those guys.
0: Yeah, no, I mean no question. Yeah. let let me jump ahead because one of the things I'm always interested to ask um, players is what the experience is like of being traded. And in the spring of '82, you were traded to Texas. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I may have been after you guys broke uh, uh north from spring training. I mean, it was very, very uh, close to the dawn of the season. There, you got dealt in a, a multiplayer deal for for Al Oliver and got shipped uh, uh to Arlington. Uh, what was your reaction? I mean, was that did that did that catch you completely off guard? And and what's it like uh, as a as a pro athlete? You know, being, most of us, whatever our job is, we might think that we'd like to be a baseball player or a football player or whatever, but getting traded is not really the thing that we're thinking about. So, I mean, what's that like, uh, having to go somewhere at the decision of, uh, of somebody else? It is a, a,
1: a different experience. Uh, you know, As a, like I said, I had... I had came up with the Expos and, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, really I felt like I, I was, uh, uh, you know, I had, a some injury issues. Uh, you know, I, I was getting much better. I had a great, you know, I had a good 78, I had a great 79, and then I went into 1980 and, and uh, got, you know, got off to a great start. And uh, with the, the old ballpark in Montreal, the uh, Olympic Stadium, in a day game, uh, they we had a because it was oval shaped. You had a lot of shadow problems out there, and uh, I can, rem- you know, remember that. A lot of hit. I seen a lot of hitters there just you know lose the ball, and you know would get hit uh, simply because they didn't know where to, they didn't know where to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can remember on this uh, first time up, I hit a you know hit a double off of a slider off of Ed Whitson, who was uh, with the Giants at the time. I believe the Giants at the time might have been San Diego, but one of those two. And next time up, you know, he threw a pitch up and in uh you know, which they did back then, you know, I I hit a what he thought was a pretty good pitch for a double and you know, off of a slider, so he was you know, he threw the pitch up and in and and, you know, it wouldn't have been any problem to get out of the way of it. Uh except I didn't see it. Right. You know, and, and and that's a bad That situation when you're at the plate, and it's like, I don't know where, you know, I don't know where to go or if I need to go anywhere. And I remember I saw it, you know, right out in front of home plate, and it was like chest high, and I jerked my left hand off the bat and got my body out of the way. But my right hand behind me, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about. It. And the ball hit me in my right wrist. Mm. And it, it wound up, uh, I got a, like a compression fracture, not on the outside of my wrist where the ball hit, but like on the inside uh, to a little bone in there. And I, it wound up, it bothered me the rest of the year. Uh, and then, uh, and then in 81, it was continued to bother me in the spring and, you know, and I'm going to every doctor, you know, around at the time. And, you know, the, that was before MRIs and, and, uh, uh, I remember I went to see Dr. Stark in San Francisco that said, uh, you know, I think you got, a you know, a bug bone in there that needs to be operated on, but... I'm like, I won't do it because you're a baseball player. he said, if you were an accountant, you know, that didn't need the hand, I would operate on it. And I was like, well, if I was an accountant, I wouldn't need it operated on. It only hurts. <laughs> right. It only hurts when I swing a baseball bat. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? And he goes, well, I would look for another job. Oh, my gosh. And... And right about then is when we went on strike, and I was probably the only guy in the country that the strike uh, helped in '81. Because uh, I don't know; if, I'm sure people would remember that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I came home to Florida, and, and and I didn't, you know, I didn't know if my career was over with or not, and. And I started, uh, but I had some cows at the time, and and I, I, uh, uh, I built some cattle pens. And I, sw- I I used a hammer, you know, for like six weeks. You know, every day, you know, driving nails, and I don't know if you know, if just using that hammer just kept pushing blood to that you know area that doesn't that doesn't get much blood supply. Mm-hmm. but when I came back after the strike uh I had no problems again i was I was okay, and I finished up eighty one you know i you know very well i i think I drove in like twenty six to thirty runs or something like that in the month of September for us to make the playoffs and and then I was having a good spring in eighty two and I thought I was back and you know, it's like, all right, I'm ready to go on again now. And then I got traded. And, it you know, it sort of gives you the feeling like they don't want you. Right. Uh, you know, even though I, I knew at the time that everybody was saying the reason that uh, we, haven't, we hadn't been able to go on with the Expos at that time was because we needed a, a left-handed bat in the lineup. And, uh, they thought Stargill would be the missing piece. I'm uh, not Stargill, but Al Oliver would be the missing piece, that left-handed bat would get him over the hump. And, uh, you know, I was told that, you know, that you gotta think that, well, there's someone that was trading you, somebody wanted you, but it was still, uh, it was almost like being, uh, maybe dumped by your girlfriend.
0: Yeah, no, I can see it. I can, I can understand that.
1: And, uh, it was, you know, and then when you go over there, it's, you know, it's like, I had grown up with all those players over there for the, you know, the nucleus of the club. we had all grown up together. We'd come through the minor leagues together and, you know, we were like a family. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're sort of cast out. And, uh, you know, you got to, uh, and then, and when I got traded, uh, you know, at the time, too, the Expos, I mean, we were, uh, we had went through the, the school of hard knocks, uh, I guess you might call it, in the 76, and now we had gradually gotten better, and, and then, uh, you know, in 79, uh, we lost to the Pirates on the last day, and they won the World Series, in 80, we lost to the Phillies, <clears throat> like, on the last day. They won the World Series eighty one. We lost to the Dodgers in the playoffs, and they won the World Series. And so we were, <laughs> you know, we were like the, the the great team. We just hadn't quite went all the way yet.
0: Right, knocking on the door. But,
1: but we've been knocking on the door, and we were a great team with a lot of talent. And I got traded to, to Texas down there, and it's like, whoa, you know, they didn't. Uh, it wasn't a good club. Uh, you know, and it, and it's funny, like, you know, the expos wound up folding because of financial situation. But at the time I played there, the city was going great. The organization was owned by Bofman. Uh, you know, and we were first class when we traveled, the hotels, everything was first class. And when I got traded to Texas, it was just the opposite. We were the club that was sort of, uh, fly by night, cheap. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Eddie Childs was the owner at that time and his, his business, uh, he was like a wildcat in the oil business and, it, and his shares. When I got traded there, some about the market fell and he went from, uh, his stock was traded at $24 a share and it fell to like 50 cents a share. So all of a sudden, you know, it was like, we, you know, we weren't a good club. Everything was, uh, uh you know, we're just so different. It was quite an, it was quite an adjustment. And then I was, uh, I found out that spring that I needed, uh, I needed classes and, I wore glasses during spring training, which was, which was fine. But then we opened up the season and we started playing night games and, and I could not, I, all I could see was, was reflections, uh, glare from everywhere. So I, so then I went to trying to find a contact and it, at that time I had astigmatism in my left eye and, and I had trouble finding a contact. I, you know, I went through the first two months, in Texas, trying to find a contact that would that would stay put mm-hmm. where I could see. It was like it would work in the in the office, but when I took it to the field where the wind was blowing and everything, and I would blink and it would spin, and then all of a sudden I couldn't see the ball coming.
0: Oh man, that's got to be frustrating as heck.
1: And and I I mean it was like every other day I was at the the eye doctor and. It took two months before we finally found the lens that was thick at the bottom, that was weighted, thin at the top, so that uh, toric lens, so that I could, it would stay put, so that I could actually see the ball. And then, and then from then on, I wound up having a, you know, a good career in Texas, and and uh, uh, you know, it was it was completely different atmosphere. It was. Uh, it was more what I would, you know, had grown up with, sort of country, uh, western. Uh, you know, it was hot instead of cold. Uh, you know, it was, so it was, it was totally, totally different. Uh, 360 degrees from weather wise from Montreal down to, to Arlington. Uh, but, you know, loved it. Loved it down in Texas, and, and uh, after that, after I finally got uh, adjusted, and and uh, just you know enjoyed my time there. Uh, we never we, you know, if they wound up uh, becoming a money ball club after I left, but not not during the time that I was there.
0: I I want to ask you about something that uh, you know it's, it's it's one of the. <laughs> It's the it, the the c word, uh, you know, from baseball in the nineteen eighties, which is collusion, because you know in eighty eight uh, you got dealt to to, to Boston, and uh, and you know hit pretty good in Boston for for the time that you were there, and uh, you know there was no reason to believe that. Uh, Larry Parrish wasn't still a productive player at that time in your career, but my understanding is is that you like a lot of guys veterans uh had difficulty getting a getting a fair offer uh at, after that eighty eight season uh, and ultimately, you decided to go to Japan. Could you kind of take me through? Your experiences after '88, and then kind of realizing that it wasn't going to happen here in the states, and then making the decision to 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 go and play in Japan.
1: Yeah, at the time, uh, uh, you didn't know about the collusion, but it was, but like you said, it was you know, here's a guy that I hit, you know, and. In 1987, I hit 32 homers, drove in 100 some runs in Texas, and then in '88, and then '88, uh, I wound up having knee surgery Uh, at the very beginning of spring training. It was a uh, meniscus tear in the right knee, so I missed all of spring training and then started the season uh you know in the opening day lineup well that was a that was a mistake uh you know especially at uh you know at the time I was 35 and and you know the, just all you know the game was moving too fast <laughs> you know without spring training right and uh it took it took a while that year to, to, you know, to to sort of get on track. But I still thought, like you said, I still thought I had a lot of baseball left. And all of a sudden, there wasn't there wasn't any anything out there other than, yeah, you can come to spring training with us and you know and try to make the club. And you know, I think a lot of guys and you know were you know, at the time they were trying to get rid of all the, the older players. And, uh, you know, it was a master plan to get rid of the older players that had sort of been a part of the union that had gone through the strikes in the past. And they were going to try to, the owners were going to try to take back, uh, some of the stuff that they had given and the away in the negotiations, And, and, you know, I didn't really know, uh, you know, what I was gonna do, uh, you know, I just took for granted that well that's the only the only uh available thing is is just go to spring training and try to make a club. I never had to do that uh since I was a rookie. And uh but then my my agent Dick Moss called and and said that hey we have an offer uh to go play in Japan. Are you interested? And you know at the time you know I'm you know I'm 30 I'll be I was going to play the next season at 36 years old so you know you knew at the time that you didn't have many years left
0: Uh
1: and and with the money that they offered at that time was like well I'm not going to make I'm not going to make that money here so yes I'm interested and uh so we wound up uh, going to Japan and playing there for two years. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience, uh, uh, you know, just seeing a, a, a different part of the world, a different culture, uh, you know, uh, it, w- it was great. And it wound up uh, always say that, you know, that uh, I played baseball, you know, in four languages. I played in English, French, Spanish and Japanese.
0: Yeah, that's that sums it up pretty well. I mean, and, and not only did you play in, in in Japan, and I and I mean, I know that uh, we, you know we didn't talk about your time in the winter leagues, but I mean, you uh, uh, you, you played uh, darn well down there. I think you led uh, in RBIs one season, uh, right? It, it, but it, you hit forty two homers uh, and, and led the Central League there in Japan in eighty nine. So I mean. Uh, how difficult was that culturally i mean i mean maybe as you were saying you had a little bit of a you had a little bit of an advantage in in the sense that you know while you may not have been experienced with japan you knew what it was like to to uh uh you know play outside of uh, america and with language issues and whatnot but i mean to to go over there that late in your career and to perform as well as you did i think is a is a pretty nice feat
1: yeah it was uh I remember uh, uh we started we spring trained we started in Yuma Arizona uh for a little bit, sort of like boot camp there and uh and they did a lot of uh you know a lot of exercises you know it was, it was sort of like boot camp you know and they they do the frog leaps and jumps around the outfield and uh all that, you know, and, you know, and I had had, you know, five knee surgeries by now and I hadn't, you know, I had an injury in 78 where I tore my ACL and uh, they didn't, you know, they couldn't fix them back then. So basically I played my career without an ACL and it uh, when. They had signed me to the money, and then they were wanting me to do some of those exercises. You know, I told my interpreter, I, I go, you know, yeah, I want to be, you know, part of the team, but if I keep doing these exercises here, y'all going to pay me this year not to play, you know, because my knee is not going to hold up to, to this exercise. Right. And, and they... You know, and he talked to the the manager and all, and they came back and no, 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 you don't have to do this. You know, <laughs> so you're you're sort of on your own, problem uh, physically. And uh, you know, I, I you know I always lifted weights and well, I had to, you know, to, to so my so that my knee would hold up, but. Uh, I just couldn't do some of the exercises they were going through. But then from there, we went to Maui, and, you know, that was pretty nice Yeah, uh, for our spring training.
0: That's a good spring training location, Larry.
1: Yeah, and then from there, we started, uh, when we started the games, then we went to the Southern Islands in Japan and started playing. And and, uh, uh, it was, uh, like I said, it was a great experience, you know, the, the one thing that made it nice, you know, in Japan, I mean, you didn't have any problems with the water, uh, much like Winter Ball that, you know, at the time that I played there, you know, you had to be, you had to be very careful about drinking the water. Uh, in Japan, you didn't, you didn't have that problem. Uh, you know, it was, you had to adjust to, uh, at the time, I, I wasn't familiar with sushi, you know, I never, never ate it, uh, you know, and then after a few years, you know, I, I, you know, even to this day, you know, that's part of my, uh, part of my diet, but, uh, at the time, it, you know, it was new to me and it was, uh, it was a, always an adjustment at different places to food, but, uh, uh, but we, you know, we settled in and adjusted, uh, very well uh i was a big horse racing fan japan loves uh horse racing so uh, i fit in very well there and uh so just uh, we enjoy our stay
0: there how was the quality of the pitching that that's one of the questions that i always have i mean at least at that time i mean you know you you obviously had had, had been looking at big league pitching for for about 14 years or so at that point uh how was the quality of pitching in in that league Uh, the
1: pitching was very good Uh, they could they compared uh, you know some of the clubs like the Tokyo Giants compared uh, you know man for man might have been as good a pitching staff as I I ever faced wow Uh, you know uh, I don't, you know, we, they might have not been throwing ninety. I meant a uh, hundred, but everybody threw in the nineties on that club with different breaking balls and uh, a lot of a lot of splits. Uh, so they were uh, uh, very formidable pitching wise. You know, Nomo. I faced Nomo when he was over there, and he came over here and pitched You know, and pitched very well. Uh, but when I was over there, I would have said that there was 10 or 12 pitchers over there that was better than Nomo. Wow. When I was over there. Yeah. (laughs) But position player wise, uh, position player wise, they didn't compare. Uh, now they had some good players, but they didn't have a team pool. Uh, you know, and that's why they, a lot of times they would come to the States looking for a hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially a power hitter, because they were, uh, they had a, what I call it, uh, they didn't have many 250 hitters. Right. You know, it was like, you know, it was like they had some guys that could hit 300, uh, you know, at 280 to 300, top top of the line hitter, uh, you know, leading off and in the middle of the lineup. But then after you got, you know, six, seven Six, seven, eight, nine were going to be hitting 200.
0: <laughs> right.
1: You know, they didn't have the 250 guys down there. Uh, I know I played with a shortstop over there, Ikiyama, that uh, he would have been a heck of a player if he would have, you know, if they would have been movement at that time to come over here. Uh, he had a strong arm. He was at like 6'2, 190. Uh, he had power. Uh, he was just a—he was just a heck of a player. You know, it could have played over here, and no doubt in my mind. But they just—you know—they just didn't do that at the time.
0: Yeah, because Nomo was. Uh... Noah was the, was the first, right? I mean, right. yeah. So I, all right, well, I'm, I'm, I want to wrap it up here with you. I don't want to monopolize all your time, but I, but I sure am enjoying it. But I, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about your coaching and managing career, because, uh, you know, l- looking through it, I mean, for for many years after your after your career, you you, you managed, uh, and of course you you've coached as well and scouted. Uh, you know, you won you won league championships, and I'm quite sure that a lot of my listeners don't know this, but I mean you won league championships at the at the a ball level double a and, and a couple at triple a <laughs> so uh it, it, one of the things that, that that interests me about your managing career is that lots of times it seems like all star caliber players maybe are reluctant to go down to the minor leagues and and coach you know particularly a, a, at the lower levels, and you did that uh what was that like going back the long bus rides and you know in some ways i guess your career kind of coming full circle to you know when you were a minor leaguer yourself
1: i'm not a a fan of flying and so bus rides didn't bother me (laughs) Uh,
0: okay now i gotta i gotta stop and ask you about that real quickly because i i was a guy who was afraid to fly like well if i never flew now here I am admitting something, but I never flew until I was in my late thirties. I grew up paralyzed, you know. Even, even just thinking about it, you know, my mother had a fear of flying, and <laughs> I guess I picked that up from her, uh, you know, when I was a kid, and I didn't want any part of it. But I mean, you obviously is a big leaguer; you're flying all the time. Uh, I mean, how, how how do you deal with that? And you know, because that, that that you know that whole sort of thing, because in your line of work. There was there was no way to to avoid it.
1: No, and I I think it. uh, You know, I've always you know I thought to myself, I never talked to anybody else about it, but I always felt like I would have I would have been a better player in the older days traveling by train Uh, because you know flying bothered me that much. you know, there was days that, you know, I was always checking the weather. And when you knew you were flying out that day and and the weather was going to be bad between either where you were flying out of, where you are flying to, or in between, uh, you know, I'd be playing that game thinking about the flight that night. Uh, you know, and I think it took away from Concentration-wise, you know, for me, uh, sometimes just thinking about, you know, the flights, and sometimes they wouldn't be that bad. But to me, it was just thinking about them, and you know, dealing with it.
0: Right. Uh, that's that, that's almost the worst the, part. Was yeah, the,
1: was the issue. It was. It was. Uh, uh, you know, I had a lot of trouble with it. I, I really did. Uh, and. It, you know, we just had some, uh, you know, and I, it was a, I didn't fear it when I started out. It was just, we started, you know, we just had a lot of bad flights, I did. Uh, you know, and it just, it just kept building up to where, you know what, uh, you know, I just sort of felt like I was running out of, uh, I might be running out of luck, you know, it's, you know, it's like playing Russian roulette It's like pretty soon the bullet's going to come up.
0: <laughs> I mean, did you, did, I mean, that's you,
1: just the way I felt, Sure. You know, and other people, other people it didn't bother, but
0: no, I can understand I, it. Speaking from my own I personal not, experience, I did not enjoy it.
1: Did,
0: I mean, were you ever, did you ever, were you ever on a plane that you thought, you know, maybe there was a chance it was going to go down?
1: Oh, Yes. I had a few of those, <laughs> and uh, you know, I know that uh, you know we we flew out. I can remember one flight that uh, we were we were flying an Ozark Charter when I was in Montreal, and and we were uh, we played a game in Wrigley. And we get to, we go into the airport, and it's storming while we're going to the airport. We get to the airport, O'Hare Airport is closed down. People are laying all around the terminals, and you know, tarmac, uh, you know, because flights have been canceled, flights they are on hold. And we walked, stepped over all those people and got on a little DC-9 and flew from Chicago to St. Louis. And we got an off day the next day on a Monday. You know, we get a bus
0: to right to
1: St. Louis in eight hours. I think it was.
0: What's the hurry?
1: And yeah, what's the hurry? And they said, well, they, they this plane. They need this plane. Is it's, it's supposed to go pick up somebody else. And and I'm telling you, we that plane did everything from Chicago to St. Louis, lightning just cracking everywhere. And, uh, you know, you could have heard a pin drop the whole flight. Uh, and then when we get there, you know, the pilot comes on and goes, hey, you know, he circled for just a little bit. And then he, he's like, I, we only put enough fuel on here to get here. And, guys, we're out of fuel. We got to go down. And,
0: oh my gosh!
1: And, and you guys, it's going to be rough. Y'all gonna, you know, y'all need to hang on because it's going to be rough. You know, when a pilot tells you that, that's, you know that that's pretty scary. Yeah, that's no joke. Yeah. And uh, and you know, there was one of those when we got that plane on the ground. You know, there was guys that got out and you know and kiss the kiss the runway when we finally got it on the ground. You know, and it was just flights like that. After a few of those, you're like, you know, uh, I just, <laughs> you know, we had to, we had the hydraulics go out on one, and,
0: and oh, had to, <laughs> you know, they
1: took up, they took up everything, belts, rings, shoes, and it's like, you know, this is why I don't like to fly right here. Oh. I can't ask this guy to pull over i'll walk the rest of the way <laughs> you know no. you know we're going down
0: was that when you were with montreal that the that you had the high no, that
1: was actually with that was actually with texas
0: no kidding and they took up like all your stuff but like in anticipation oh, yeah. of possibly crashing yeah okay they took well up everything well you know what larry and I, they dumped uh, <laughs>
1: they dumped all the fuel and we did a practice run over the runway and we were landing in minnesota and uh, you know, and they got the fire trucks and ambulances out there lining the runway, and it's like you know, and they were trying to tell you how to put your head against the seat in front of you and bend over, and it's like man, you know. And at the time, you could still smoke uh on flights. I think Mickey Rivers had three cigarettes going. He had one, he had, <laughs> he had one, in, he was holding one and had one in each side of
0: his mouth. Well, if there's ever a time for it, (laughs) that was it. That was it. Uh, it, 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 That's crazy. What what kind of plane was that? Do you remember? No, I don't. But it
1: was. It was a. uh, It was not a charter. Okay. We flew. We flew a commercial flight, and I can remember that Charlie Huff hated to fly as much as I did and we we played cards a lot and he was he always got the, the traveling secretary always give him tried to get him a window you know the 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 exit seat and uh, it was a funny story because uh, uh you know it was like when the hydraulics went out I mean we made a big dip you know and then they righted the plane and 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 it was it was not a bad weather day and you looked out and it's like man I wonder what that was I mean there's blue skies out there and then all of a sudden the stewardesses started going up and down the you know the aisles pretty quick and I looked at Charlie and I said Charlie something's wrong I something's up and I said there's too much activity and then it wasn't long and the the lady came by and told Charlie that Because he was sitting by that window, she was telling him how to get it open. And then he was in charge of so many seats, making sure all these people got off the plane when we got there. And Charlie's like, ma'am, he goes, if I can, I'll get this door open. But he said, after I get this door open, I'm going to yell, y'all follow me, and that's it. I'm gone. (laughs) And and she's she's like, no, no, no. You know, she got uh, sort of huffy with him and told him, you know, that, no, you're in charge of so many owls, you got to make sure all these people get off. (laughs) And he's like, ma'am, he says, you can get mad if you want to, but I'm just telling you up front. (laughs) If we we get this thing on the ground... (laughs) I'll open this door, but after that it's off
0: <laughs> uh, oh my gosh well you know that I
1: mean when they I mean they took up everything and then when we got i when we landed we were we were all right and and when we got in the terminal I mean they just i mean they brought in garbage bags and just dumped them you know in the middle of the airport you know and I mean it was like. Belts, watches, rings—you know anything that would cut. Uh, you know the the ramp, blow up ramp was taken up.
0: Wow, so it was it that... was
1: it was quite an experience.
0: All right, well, you know what? If, if I went through something like you know, I'd like to say that I've conquered my fear of flying. But if something like that happens, why? I might have to reevaluate, <laughs> Larry. I mean, <laughs> well, listen, I'll, i you know what? I've talked to other people,
1: and they've never had a flight like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you go through something but, like that. I, you know, I, I think that's going to stick with you. I mean, that's got to stay somewhere yeah. in the back of your mind, right? I mean, particularly if you don't like flying to begin with. Right. I mean, that's my. I, I was, uh, I was white knuckling my way just through the story, yeah. you know? Right.
1: <laughs> and, uh, but, so I didn't mind going back to bus rides. And, well, I started out, uh, I had become friends with a guy, Joe McDonald, that, uh, was the GM for the Mets, and he was with the Cardinals in the 80s. Uh, And then he was with the Detroit Tigers and he was living in Lakeland. He had married a a local lady that I was friends, uh, I was good friends of her friends. And uh, so I met Joe at like uh, cookouts, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I got through playing, uh, you know, Joe offered me, uh, you know, a job coaching. And... uh, you know, he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, "Well, I, I and I don't really know." And he goes, "Well, how about coaching? If you thought about that?" And I said, "Well, everybody that plays has thought about it." Uh, and he goes, "Well," he said, "I got an opening. I'd like for you to to manage uh, the uh, eight ball club in Niagara Falls, and and just see if you like it." And you know when I I did it I just en- I really enjoyed the teaching part of the game and you know relating experiences as I went through and and uh, uh, you know and never I tried never to forget how tough the game was and and the struggles that you know I went through at times and, and uh, you know just enjoyed relating that to the to the players and and trying to point them in the right direction and and just really uh, just enjoyed coaching
0: well I mean you you, had a lot of success I mean of course you you managed the Tigers for for a while which I don't want to gloss over that because I mean you are a former major league manager as well but I mean, you. I had, as I said, I mean, you won a league championship at uh, you know A ball, Double A, and Triple A. A couple of them at Triple A, and you're in the International League Hall of Fame. Yes, sir. It
1: was. It was. It was a a good career, and 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 I enjoyed it. Like I said, I enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the coaching uh, end of it. When I got to Triple A, it was you know it was it was a a time that, you know, I had guys that were real close to the big leagues and, you know, felt like that I could, uh, you know, I felt like I had some success in getting some of them, uh, over the hump and, you know, and, and getting them a major league career. And, uh, it was very satisfying.
0: This this was a a great conversation, and th- those airplane stories I think are what are what's going to stay with me <laughs> the, the the most from this. I mean, I was you had me on the edge of my seat uh, with, uh, with the with with those stories. Uh, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and for for letting me interview you today. And you know, I wish you the very best. All right, thank you very much, Rick. Big thanks to LP for coming on the podcast today and those airplane stories. My goodness. Uh, I guess if your hydraulics go out uh, on the way to play the Minnesota Twins, then perhaps you're entitled to have a little bit of a fear of flying. Uh, I felt like Lloyd Bridges in Airplane uh, just listening to those stories. I picked the wrong week to give up smoking or, or sniffing glue or something like that. Uh, My guest next time on the podcast is Basketball Hall of Famer Dan Issel. Uh, Dan, the leading scorer in the history of the University of Kentucky and the number two all-time scorer in the American Basketball Association, a true legend of the game. So make sure that you tune in next time. we got great things coming uh, with Dan Issel on the podcast and a lot of other special guests lined up as well. So I'm Ricky Cobb. I thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast.